It's Dr. Stu's podcast at drstu.com. I'm Brian Whitman with my friend, Dr. Stuart Fishbein. And thank you for joining us at drstuespodcast.com. You can also access Dr. Stu's podcast on iTunes. Subscribe to the feed on iTunes and give them five stars and write a nice review. Then you'll have Dr. Stu on your computer. You'll have him in your iPad, on your iTunes. Your life will be full of Dr. Stu. How are you, sir? I'm great, Brian. It's a really good day for me today. Uh, it's a big sporting day. I'm going to the Dodger game tonight. Series is at 2-1. to 2-1. to one. Two to one. Dodgers won last night. I'm very excited about that. And while I'm at the Dodger game, I'm going to be watching the Kings game on my iPhone. So I, uh, <laughs> this is a this is a great uh, great day for me. Now, Double fisting sports. Clearly, I have to ask you a judgment call. Clearly, the Dodger victory has to mean more to you than the Kings victory in this predicament. Well, absolutely, it means the victory means more. But also, I I can't make it all the way to Tampa Bay, so I would probably not be able to make it to both games at the same time. Mm, just so you I know see. that. But if one team had to lose tonight the Dodgers or oh. the Kings, you would have to surrender your own Kings. I would hesitate for just a second, and oh. then I would have to surrender the Kings, yes. You would, yeah, see that? Forgive me, forgive me, my, my sons and my fans, but uh, forgive me, I, I, I would have to pick the Dodgers because yeah. this oh. is big-time stuff. I'm with you, and surprising, too. We're not, a, this is not sports talk, but Dr. Stu's sports talk. Right, and you know, it's another good day today because I have a dear friend of mine here, which you're going to introduce to us right now. Yes, we are very excited to meet Dr. Jennifer Lang. She is a board-certified doctor as we call them in OBGYN not practicing obstetrics by the way she has three babies before I get to that she is a fellowship she has a fellowship trained in gynecological oncology that's cancer that is right Hi. so I'm a layperson I'm putting this together how are you doing really well I'm so happy to be here welcome to Dr. Stu's podcast you have three babies two of them you had at home you had a girl she's five mm -hmm. a boy three and a half and your baby girl just turned two last Friday that's right Congratulations. yeah and Jennifer Jennifer is one of those I mean she's very special uh, I've worked Jennifer worked in my office with me for three and a half years before she went off to do uh, mainly GYN oncology and have her babies and um, I've always been totally impressed with her because her approach to healthcare, whether it be office gynecology, whether it be oncology, whether it be obstetrics, is completely, not completely different, but very different from the standard OBGYN practitioner. And uh, maybe Jennifer can explain a little bit to us as to how she got the philosophy and, you know, you're very much more holistic than, than I would say pretty much any of our colleagues. Wouldn't you agree? I think everyone has their same their their style, their personal style. Mine is to get to know my patients pretty well and look at them in a big picture sense, uh, figure out what's right for them, help them come to treatment decisions that they really feel aligned with. I'm not trying to push something on them. So we take a lot of time to figure out, you know, what are your priorities? What are your fears? What are your anxieties? You know, uh, how can we figure out what is right for you. Yeah, you don't do a volume practice and you practice true informed consent uh, and, and give people the right of consent or refusal to, to treatment, right? Absolutely. I believe so strongly that, you know, women uh, should be the boss of their own bodies and they know intuitively what feels right, what feels wrong. And, and you got into, um, it's a little unusual combination initially that you were doing Mm -hmm. uh, OBGYN, and then you went on to do your fellowship in GYN oncology. Most people, when they finish their fellowship in GYN oncology, will then practice GYN oncology. You, however, were also, for several years, doing natural birthing. Right, and that's 
I mean, for a large part, because there are not a lot of, as you know, OBGYNs out there that are willing to back up midwives. And I really believe in the midwifery model for obstetrics and for low-risk pregnancies. Um, I benefited from it myself, and I felt like I had a duty to try to be there to support women in the community. And I assume uh, Dr. Lang, Dr. Jennifer Lang is with us. You have three babies. I assume uh, your first boy and your second girl probably you had outside the hospital, right? Because you had three, the first baby you had in the hospital. That's right. And after having your first baby in the hospital, obviously, look, you're you're an OBGYN. I mean, people, you know as much about this as anybody. Um, So if you know as much about this as anybody, why then, if I'm going to advocate for the Dr. Stu position here that we talk about a lot on Dr. Stu's podcast, as uh, why five years ago mm-hmm. did you even think to have your first child at the hospital? Is that a fair yeah. question? No, it's a very fair question. And so the complete honest answer is even though I delivered hundreds of babies at that point, possibly even over a thousand, I'm not sure. And many outside of the hospitals. No, but before. Okay. So in my training. Right. Um, I had no idea what birth would actually feel like for me. And, um, and I certainly had my own set of fears and anxieties about that. I tried to do a lot of work during the pregnancy to get comfortable, let that go. And it turned out that my first, first birth was pretty easy and comfortable and uh, wonderful and after that experience I gave birth in the water at the hospital um, and left pretty much right after and you had a midwife for that birth too well by accident uh, because the baby was born before my doctor even made it to the (laughs) hospital so there was a midwife who was you know walking by in the hall and she came in and I was in a tub and she said you know just very quietly, I just want you to know I've been present at a lot of water births. I'm here if you need me. And then she stepped back. How sweet. It was so sweet. And, you and know, generous. And generous and supportive. And I delivered my own baby, and she actually didn't need to do anything. And it, after that experience, I was like, why did I come to the hospital? I can do this at home. I talked to a friend of mine this morning. We had uh, on a recent podcast, uh, the one before last, we had Alicia Krause, who's my co-host, on yeah. uh, The Morning Answer on KRLA, AM870, The Answer, here in Los Angeles. I'll get a little plug. <laughs> a little shameless plug. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you, Stu. And we were talking, Dr. Stu, I thought of you, because we were talking about, I was talking to Alicia, and we were talking about home birthing, because there's this story, we'll get to it in a moment, of a baby that was born off the Santa Monica Boulevard exit off the 405 freeway on Monday morning about 1 a.m. And Alicia described her own birth at home about two months ago of her daughter, Stevie. And she said, and then she stopped and corrected herself. Her husband is Eric. She said, well, there was a time there. She said, well, Eric really delivered Stevie. And then she stopped herself and said, caught Stevie. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, is that a thing like that? That babies, when their birth happens at home, they're not delivered, they're caught? Is that a word that I should include into my vernacular when talking about home birthing? I, pre- I prefer receive, personally. Caught sounds a little bit athletic. Yeah, you sounds know? Yeah, like yeah. a baby popped out and right. popped up high in the air. And yeah, you had a glove on. Circled, yeah. circled underneath <laughs> it and then got the mid out and right. boom. It yeah. was a Hail Mary, but it was perfect. You know, you take out that CBS chalkboard. And it's just a perfect And shot. by the way, if you have catching babies, you could also probably have an error then, couldn't you? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, right. So that is, I guess, uh, yeah. Jen, that is a to receive, not to deliver. So it begs the question, why is the sentence or the use of the verb in this context 
I or we delivered a baby. Mm-hmm. What now, politically, in this politically correct world, what's wrong with that? But we're not politically correct on the Unbirthed. Dr. Stu's podcast show. Oh. Brian of KRLA 870 AM, the answer. Thank you. No, I know you're not politically correct. But <laughs> From wh- 6 to 9 in the morning drive Thank you. time. <laughs> Thank you so much, Brian, Ben, and Alicia. But why is delivery a bad word? Like, wh- I guess I'm asking you, uh, 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 Jennifer, why she stopped herself mm-hmm. from saying delivery and chose caught as a synonym. Okay. Well, I think words are very powerful and they absolutely have the effect to change the way we think about something um, and to change the way our body experiences that. And so, you know, the hypnobirthing philosophy is very clear to to look at the language of birth. And right now the medical language is pretty violent. It's a little derogatory. Um at times misogynistic and so if we can transform that language into something a little bit gentler or more empowering to women um, hopefully that will carry over into the actual experience in their bodies so we talk about um, uh, instead of breaking the water Right, Releasing. rupturing membranes. Rupturing membranes, we release the water or right. the water releases um, instead of uh, contractions, which, you know, in your mind, you're thinking of something that is tight and yes. contracted and pent up and or painful, painful. Uh, you know, you transform it into a surge, which was, in fact, my experience of it, it was much more like a surge, like a wave mm. that went up and went down. And it, it didn't have this connotation of, you know, what are, what are some other words that we transform? You know, uh, it's interesting, you guys, if I may for a moment, uh, Dr. Stu is here, of course, Dr. Jennifer Lang is here, uh, both OBGYNs. Uh, Jennifer does not practice obstetrics. Uh, she stopped two and a half years ago. We'll ask why in a moment. It's interesting as I listen to you guys, there seems to be an effort, whether it's overt or covert, but I think it's overt, to change pretty actively the brand of giving birth you're trying you're changing words you're changing feelings about birth whether it be at home or in a hospital you're switching out older words and introducing more friendly words or more comfortable words this is quite an effort when only one out of 100 babies are born outside the hospital you know you've got a long way to go in convincing a lot of people i really feel uh for maybe the second or third time while doing this podcast while listening to this word talk that we really are at the bottom floor here of an effort to sort of remodel and rebrand uh, the oldest practice in the book. Yeah, well, this language never, this language was created, the harsher language was created when medicine took over the uh, uh, delivering of babies in the last hundred years. It wasn't, I don't think they had these term, this terminology before. And language, because as Jennifer said, is so important, is how we describe things, is how we perceive them. And, and we talked about this in the last podcast, uh, the dialect of deceit, and how that, that the words that are used, like provider rather than doctor, or, or uh, being credentialed as, implies that if you're not a credential with an insurance company, that you're not qualified. I mean, they use these words. Submit we, was one, doctor shall submit. Well, yeah, that's our famous one. But right. As, as, a, as one of my missions in both my private practice and in my public persona is to re- change the way people perceive, perceive birth, to make that pregnancy seem more like a normal function of the body than a illness, which is sort of the medical way it's treated now is treated, you're called a patient. We call them clients. That's a, a key word that we've talked about many times before. And the reason we do that is because you're not sick. 
And, you know, when you have pain or contractions or ruptured membranes, or well, there are a whole bunch of these words, and they're, they're leaving my brain right now. They'll come back through the podcast. I'll bring up some more as we get, come along. Well, we've probably heard 10 of them already. There's a lot. But there's a lot, and, and the, because the whole thing is medicalized, and that's not the way we wanted people to perceive it. In order to change... You know, minds, you, you know, you've always heard you have to reach the hearts. You have to change the hearts and minds. And you, in order to do that, you have to be able to be uh, giving them another way to look at things. But you also have to be honest and truthful. And I think that one of the things that Jennifer and I both agree on totally is that informed consent is, is the mainstay of what we do. And giving people true information, not skewed information. And by using words that are more gentle and honest, that's not skewing anything. That is being honest. And so that is the big push that we have with Dr. Stu's podcast and with my, you know, with my own private practice is to try to change. And all, all the midwives that I work with, we all do the same sort of thing. We all are trying to define pregnancy in a different way because it's been three, four generations of women now that have been indoctrinated to believe that yeah. their bodies don't know what they're doing. And for millions of women, it's already been so well defined by others. Absolutely. And the my main thing is that a pregnant woman is not sick. She is not disabled. She is, you know, in a fully natural state and it should not be treated like an illness unless there's a problem. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I do not believe that all 100 babies should be born at home. I think that, you know, home birth should be an option that is available for some women. Um, and I think that there should be a screening process to determine who, you know, who it is right for and who maybe would benefit by having some medical stuff. But, it's, dis them up. but it's dishonest, as we see so much in the in the literature right now from the uh, what I call the, the medical industrial complex yes. to vilify birthing, to vilify home birthing, to vilify people that support home uh, birthing, to make mothers who choose this out to be. Oh, child abusers, the right. equivalent to of... To inject fear, it, right? Isn't it fear-based language? It's, it's fear-based, fear and yeah. it's, also, it's also vicious in some way. Yeah. It's, it's more than just fear-based. There's a, there's a meanness to it. Mm -hmm. When you look at some of the ways that, that they talk about home birthing or the article that, that came out recently about um, you know, home birth being much more dangerous than... Do you mm -hmm. believe, uh, Dr. Stu and Dr. Jennifer Lang, that it is calculated? Because, wow, that would sort of add another element entirely to it if, that, if, if it's calculated to create those reactions from female readers who might be pregnant moms. Yes. You, you take this one. I, I think it is. I saw I, you pause to yeah. consider your answer. No, I, I think it is um, by some and, and not by others. I think that um, anyone who tries to deny that medicine in this country is a business is um, delusional. I mean, it is absolutely a business, and economics drives much of what happens. Um, however, I also think, and because I've been through this, I've lived through this, that the training process of doctors is uh, inherently, um, it is to teach us how to think about the 10 worst things that could happen to somebody and then start doing interventions to try to avoid that outcome right and that that model does not necessarily work well with a normal natural state like pregnancy i had a i had a client a good example i had a client recently who's breech uh who's seeing a physician in simi valley and before she was referred to the chiropractor who then referred her to me for a consultation she was the the physician in simi valley freaked her out completely she said that breach is dangerous that no one does breaches anymore and and 
it was it was so disingenuous for that uh, doctor to say all those things that it just seemed like, you know, why is she saying this? And and my my argument was when I talked to the, fa- the family about this, my argument was not specifically with the doctor herself, although the, the way the doctor and her bedside manner were terrible, but my issue was with the training program because all she's all this doctor is doing is really repeating what she was trained. So my anger when it really comes to this is not so much with doctors who say dumb things, but it's with the the fact that the training programs, even if a doctor would come through a program and not want to do breech deliveries or not want to do forceps deliveries, they ought to know how to do them. I think it's really interesting because uh, I got a great question. I think it's great. I'll let the audience decide if it's a great question. Somebody a long time ago said to me, Brian, never tell the audience that you've got a funny story. They'll decide if it's funny. Don't tell them you got a great question. They'll figure that out on their own. But uh, we have two doctors here, Dr. Stu here for Dr. Stu's podcast and Dr. Jennifer Lang, who I'm going to call Jen or maybe Jenno. Maybe I'll even call you Jenny, right? But uh, look, you, you know, in the plumbing world, in the home contracting world, in any other business, probably in the insurance world, if somebody comes in, a, a, a person, a, a customer, right, a client, a patient, if it's, if it's a traditional medicine, if another doctor, if, if another plumber says or does something so wrong, like they just screwed up all your, it's crazy, then the other guy comes in here because here comes the customer now to this point says, well, that guy told me X, Y, Z. I ask you, both of you, because I don't know the answer, and I think most people who listen to Dr. Stu's podcast, they're not doctors. They are patients or, or clients or moms or former moms, uh, former pregnant moms or potential pregnant moms, and they get to hear it from the doctor's side. Do you guys ever, in the code of medicine, pick up a phone, Dr. Stu in that example, and call that chiropractor and say, hey, it's Dr. Stuart Fishbein, you know, talking about uh, this person, uh, Mrs. XYZ. And, you know, why did you tell her such and such? Don't you know that such and such just isn't true? What's your motivation? Not that you call to start an argument, but when you feel that a patient or a client has been fed information that is one-sided at the least, wrong at the extreme, wouldn't you feel an obligation as a professional and just as a human being to call that guy and say, why'd you fill her head with such nonsense? That is a great question. Uh, hopefully our audience would be applauding right now, but our producers asleep at the wheel. Yes, so. and, please sit. I want the audience to sit now. Thank you. I'm getting a stand. Yes, oh, yeah. No, sit. Please sit. Enjoy. That, enjoy. that is a marvelous question, and it raises a whole herd of issues. So um, what's the answer? You don't call? The answer is that if you call, even with the best of intentions, you're going to be perceived as an asshole. So it's really, you can't really change somebody. And they'll put that on your chart? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not, we don't have a chart with right, them. Right, right. I'm just saying that all that will do is that person will then go to her colleagues and say, you know, that Dr. Stu, he's an asshole. All right. And, and that's what they'll do because they would then have to admit that one, they don't know something that would violate the, the ego clause. And two, that they, that they would have been wrong. And it's very difficult for doctors to do that in that setting. Now, if I could get a chance or Jennifer could get a chance to speak to a group where you're not singling someone out and you could give a lecture about the safety of, of selected breach delivery or something like that, that would be fine. But these things are pretty ingrained. Uh, Jennifer, what's your thought on that? Well, my feeling is that personally, I would love if a doctor who disagreed with something I'd said would call me directly. I would love that. 
because I think it would be such a great opportunity to open up the conversation. Provided it's civil and all of this. Oh yeah, but why can't we be civil? We're oh, professionals. We're you know I I don't my ego is not too big that I can't take somebody's constructive critique and maybe answer them back with what I was thinking and maybe each one of us could learn something. Right, but you would never speak to a patient right. in the first place like this doctor spoke to this patient telling them that this is you know, unheard of. This is dangerous. No one does this sort of thing. In the Anybody who does is a looney tune. Dr. Jennifer, in, in the scenario that Dr. Stu articulated where the woman had come from, the chiropractor, could Well, you actually, no, the chiropractor referred to me with... It was a doctor okay, in, in doctor. Simi Valley, Simi. who shall remain nameless. Of course. the only group that's in Simi Valley who shall remain nameless. In that, in that scenario, <laughs> uh, Dr. Jennifer Lang, might you find yourself sounding more open to the dialogue with another professional? In a case like that, might you, or have you in cases like that, picked up the phone and started a healthy dialogue with another professional? I can say it has happened okay. before. Yeah. You, you can say. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. But it would not be the norm if the, somebody was somebody who was sort of hostile to you or sort of... Right. I mean, they're, they're not, right. not going to be willing to listen to her no. if they're already sort of hostile to her in the first place. What should if, patients, if a, what should patients, clients, hearing this conversation about the... Almost taboo issue of doctors calling out other doctors, even privately. What should patients glean from this? Should patients be afraid to hear this inside the baseball chatter from two very highly regarded professionals who are doctors? I think that patients have already experienced how different, different physicians' approaches can be. They just know that. I mean, you can go around town and get five different opinions as to what you should do, all from board-certified OBGYNs, you know, um, there certainly is an art to medicine, don't you think? And yep. not everybody is going to give you the same answer, um, and and that's beautiful, mm. you know. Well, uh, you know, this is this is the problem that permeates. You know, I remember my days in the hospital, where, you know, n everyone was afraid to speak up because everyone was afraid to piss off somebody else or whatever else. So you know, nurses could see something that they knew was probably the way it should be going. But they're afraid to speak up to the doctor because the doctor may then chew them out. Or So there is this sort of cone of silence, to quote an old yeah. get smart term, where you, it doesn't, you don't go outside, you don't go off the reservation. And it's, and it's not quite, it's wrong, but it, it's, ego does get in the way. I mean, really, and ego is, and it, retribution. It's, there's, it's there's, politics there, in a lot of ways. There's, there, it sounds there, like politics. It's politics, and there's hell to pay sometimes when you do speak up. As I experienced firsthand in communities where I advocated for things that the community or the doctors and community didn't want. Right. And rather than saying, you know, Dr. Fishbein has a point and we understand it and, and, and talk rationally, it became a very uh, ad hominem sort of situation. Here on Dr. Stu's podcast, we're joined today by Dr. Jennifer Lang. She's board certified OBGYN, not practicing obstetrics. She has three babies, a girl, a boy and a girl. Two were born at home. One was born in the hospital. Uh, you said earlier, Jennifer, that you stopped delivering babies in the hospital two and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, are you comfortable telling us why you stopped and, and what may have led uh, to you arriving at that ultimate decision? 
Sure. I mean, it was a complex decision and one that, you know, sometimes I still struggle with. Uh, partly it was that I had my second child and the hours just became very difficult. <laughs> Babies are not born on any kind of schedule, nor should they be. You mean they don't check in with you? No, when they want? <laughs> no. In fact, I feel like they prefer nights and weekends. <laughs> right. And, you know, you're away from your kids during the week. You know, last thing you want is on the weekend to have to say, sorry, mommy has to leave again. Right. That's tough. Um, so, you know, that was certainly a part of it. Uh, I did start focusing my practice more on what my fellowship trained me to do, which is women's cancer surgery. And I felt like I owed it to my patients with cancer to be more reliable and present when they needed me and not called into the hospital for somebody who had a normal natural condition like childbirth and really didn't need me. Yeah. Um, so that that's quite honest. And then, but partly I also found it difficult and frustrating uh, to try to fit my philosophy of, uh, which is a more midwifery style practice into a hospital scenario. And it gets old to feel like you're banging your head against yeah. the wall every sure. day. Sure, yeah. sure. Interesting, you know, you mentioned a moment ago um, when you talked about gynecological oncology, you talked about, um, you know, your training there in that area of, of women's health. This is off the topic, something we didn't think we'd talk about, but it comes to me and I want to ask you about it. Uh, former President Bush and his wife, Laura, have spent a great deal of time in Africa uh, doing great work. I don't care. My, I, I didn't vote for the guy either time, but uh, I don't think he's a bad person. In fact, I like him. And how can you not like the work that they are doing in other areas of the world that are much poorer than the United States and all of the work that President Bush and our former First Lady, Laura Bush, are doing specifically on cervical cancer and, and women's health issues like that um was it time i assume the way they describe it it really was time it was a crisis time for somebody of tremendous prominence to walk in on that problem turn a few lights on and say we really have got to get things done for the health of the women of the world Yes, I agree. And cervical cancer is happens to be one of uh, my major issues. I'm on the board of a wonderful organization called CureCervicalCancer.org that does a, whose goal is to develop a freestanding, self-supported uh, cervical cancer, what, what are called see and treat clinics. Um, and I was just with them in Ethiopia in uh, April, going to Haiti in December. So I completely agree that that is a huge issue, so important. It's the leading cause of cancer death of women of reproductive age. Because women in America typically don't die of cervical cancer, if at all, right? That's right. It's about 4,000 deaths a year, which is really nothing compared to globally over half a million deaths a year. You, Completely can, preventable. Can you tell us a little bit why sure. a country like America has so few and a country like Africa has so many? Or a continent like Africa. Yeah. But, well, it's Thank throughout you. the developing world. I mean, Latin America, also the rates are incredibly high. Asia as well. Um, we have a trip to Vietnam next spring coming up. Uh, so basically, it's it's about screening. It's about access to healthcare and screening, and it's prevention. So here we have access to the HPV vaccines, um, which can you know prevent a huge number of infections. HPV causes cervical cancer. So if you don't have HPV, you cannot get cervical cancer. Um, and then we do Pap smears, and there's about a we're lucky with HPV and cervical cancer. We have about a 10-year window. Mm that we can identify and find people and treat their pre-invasive cancer before they ever need to actually have something like a hysterectomy for 
or radiation for their yeah, cancer. Yeah, before they'd ever even knew that they had it. That's right, that's right. right. So what we do in these developing countries, um, a wonderful, easy, cheap test called uh, the VIA, Visual Inspection After Acetic Acid, which is basically vinegar. Mm -hmm. So you can apply vinegar to the cervix. If you know there's a pre-invasive cancer there, it will light up white. You can do an eight-minute freezing procedure that doesn't even require electricity. Mm. It's very safe. And uh, cure people in about ninety percent of cases. This so, is wonderful. Is there yeah. a website for this? I mean, if folks, because I mean, it really, I know. Thank you. Yeah, please. Uh, yes, curecervicalcancer.org and um, is a wonderful organization. There are several that are doing this work that just happens to be the one that I'm uh, working with. Curecervicalcancer.org. Yeah, you mentioned a little bit about the HPV vaccine, and I know that there's a couple brands on the market, and, and you know, a lot of our listeners are, are sort of vaccinophobic, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering what your take as a mom mm -hmm. with two daughters yes. and a gynecologist uh, and a gynecologic oncologist who sees a skewed view of the uh, cervix in the world, um, what is your thought about about in the United States about the need or the risks of the uh, HPV vaccine? Um, I think that, well, it's not just my daughters. I fully intend to vaccinate my son as well. I mean, we now know that HPV is the leading cause of head and neck cancers in men, mm. you know. Um, See, I didn't know that. I, did. yeah. I, wa I walked in here today, yeah. Jennifer, and I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, we all learned well, Up until about a year ago, the HPV vaccine wasn't available. For boys, is that correct? Uh, I'm trying to remember what year. I think it was 2010. The CDC no, two, two uh, ago, right. recommended that boys get vaccinated as well. Wow. Um, so, you know, it, there's a bunch of vaccines that are available now, and I really researched this issue when sure. I was thinking about vaccinating my own kids and um, very thoroughly. Uh, it's it's a difficult conversation and it's a sore subject. No, I just but, 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 but okay. we speak openly on yeah. Dr. Stu's podcast. Yeah. So, so my I want to know your opinion because sure. and I also want to know like if you're going to do it, what age should you do it? Do yeah. you need to redo it in 10 years? What's the what's the whole deal with that? Yeah. So, uh, I'm a big supporter and believer in the HPV vaccine because HPV causes cervical cancer which can cause you to die and or or lose your uterus before you have a baby. So the consequences of it are, are catastrophic. Catastrophic and completely preventable. Unlike some of the vaccines we have for, you know, a mild illness, you get a rash. I mean, so what, right? Mm -hmm. Um so I think, you know, a, a, educated picking and choosing of vaccines in conversation with your doctor is totally appropriate. But for cervical cancer, I mean, it really is a shame if anybody develops an HPV-related cancer. And it's not just, by the way, of the cervix. So in my field, it's cervix, vulvar, vagina, um, bladder, and all the head and neck mm. can be related. Mm. So um, I think that uh, I, I will do it. You want all three doses in before there's any sexual contact. Mm. And so that's kind of a difficult d discussion to have with your kids, too. Yeah. Um, so you could just anticipate it and just say around 12. And the dosing is about uh, is yeah. at zero months, yeah. two months, and six months. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's up to people. But it, definitely before they go off to college, well, make sure up, they get know, all three. It, you know, all great causes start with the line, it's up to people if yeah. they want to do it. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I really applaud you because I think it's a very brave thing. I know that, uh, you know, just po it's my politics. I'm, you know, I'm, uh, you know. I'm not a pregnant mom. I, I've never been a dad. I'm not going to be a dad anytime soon that I'm aware of. Mm -hmm. I, I think that, uh, you know, to me, when I saw what President Bush did, who is a conservative Republican guy, uh, you know, dealing with such 
female issues. I mean, it softened him in my eyes. His wife, I've always had great respect for. To see them do that, really, no, it, it made it it, 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 it sounded an alarm for me when a person of national and international prominence sends up a flare on a particular problem. And I think with his help, with folks like yourself, with continued education and, of course, prevention, we can hopefully see, uh, obviously it's going to take generations, but see a real turnaround here. It's a very scary thing because uh, a lot of us might know someone uh, my age who has obviously died of cervical cancer. I'm 41 years old. Right. Unlikely in this country, but if you were to be living in right. sub-Saharan Africa, you would absolutely know many women who right. have died from cervical well, the pro- cancer. The problem, I, uh, my understanding is, uh, that the access to sort of the vaccines in these poor countries is not very good. Is is that changing? Is there, yes. are there is there money coming in yes. to help get the vaccine? Because ultimately, they need the vaccine far more than than. I mean, I, I'm not saying that upper middle class Americans shouldn't have it, but it would be much better if you were going to use the vaccine to use it in a place like Africa. Yes, and Merck, in fact, has recently announced that they're going to make this vaccine available for five dollars a shot. Oh, well. Now, I mean, $5 times three is still a crazy amount of money in Mm -hmm. many places in the world. Sure. Um, But it's a huge step forward. And in this country, you know, if it's not covered by insurance, it's closer to $200 a shot. $200 a shot. Yeah, right. So so there's a, a big difference. And vaccination is one you know, one part of the mm. equation, but we also have this huge number of women who have already been exposed who need to be screened. Well, Jennifer Lang, we need to have you back because we have other issues to talk about. For example, uh, the, 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 the headway you've made on healthy food, not just for pregnant moms, but for everybody. Yeah. And I want to hear you talk. Well, this, is, this is great stuff because, I mean, Jennifer and I have known each other a really long time and, and getting her opinion on this is something we've never talked about before. And I'm going to rethink, you know, I have a 16 and a half year old daughter and I'm going to rethink my whole process because I have not really talked to her much about the HPV vaccine, but mm-hmm. we're going to think about it now. I can, if you want, send her to my office. <laughs> yeah, I might do that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Are you on my insurance plan? No. <laughs> <laughs> Am I a provider? <laughs> yes. Are you, Did I submit you to you, uh, <laughs> Anthem? Is she good or is yeah, she good? She's great. Dr. Yeah. Jennifer Lang. So you'll come back. I'd love to. Yeah, Thank you. That would be great. She's board certified obstetrics, gynecology, not practicing obstetrics right now, doing home births. Been two and a half years uh, since she delivered a baby or received a baby in a hospital. Thanks for joining us on Dr. Stu's podcast. We have more to talk to you. Uh, so thank you so much. If you have an email for Dr. Stu, ask Stu at gmail.com. Go to iTunes, subscribe to the feed. You'll get every new podcast. Write a nice review. Give Dr. Stu five stars because he'd like that. And he's a doctor. He, he's sensitive too, right? Of course. As always, thank you, my friend. You're welcome, Brian. Thank you. For Dr. Stuart Fishbein, I'm Brian Whitman. Thanks for joining us. And for Dr. Jennifer Lang, thank you, of course. We'll see you next time. Go on. Dodgers. Go Dodgers. That's right. Dr. Stu's podcast.